Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have reached the universe's finest podcast for music that nobody wants to hear, but is forced to, day after day. We are going to start with a little bit of trivia. All right, I'm going to start today, and the name of my trivia quiz is De-Elevator Music. You probably know this from the podcast heading that you clicked on, but we're talking about Muzak today. And so one of Joe and my favorite bands, Devo, actually put out a Muzak album at some point. It's not quite an album. What they What they did is... They released two cassette tapes from their official fan club, the Club Devo, that had Muzak versions of some of their songs. And they would actually play these Muzak versions before the concert because it wasn't good enough that they opened for themselves. They also had to be the opening <laughs> music as well. So it's, it sounds so narcissistic, but. I don't think they were until near the end. I don't, I don't know, but it's like they're playing instrumental versions of their music. Then themselves as another band comes and plays music that's essentially the same songs, just with different words, and then they go and play their own songs. So you got to love Devo. Anyways, so these cassettes got kind of popular, and eventually there was bootleg albums, and those were expensive and so they finally uh, in 87 put it out via a cd Disc did and even that was a pretty hot commodity but eventually uh record store day a few years ago it got released as a kind of a swanky two disc lp called uh, easy listening and uh by futurismo records and they was even a deluxe special edition that came with a devo smoking jacket and a cocktail drink stir <laughs> some some pretty pretty fun stuff i hadn't heard about that one yeah the bonus or the deluxe i think it's still available you know if you uh if you love some music and you love some devo so that's a lot of backstory for the quiz and so joe the quiz is simply name what devo song this is okay are you ready how many do you have Six. Okay. Some of them are pretty out there. I tried to at least give you a hook that maybe can can link you to the song. Some I think are real easy. Some I think are a little bit tougher. All right, you ready? Sure. Track one. Track two. feel okay with three of them and maybe four of them there are a couple i have no idea okay okay well 
We will come back at the end of the show and play the songs again to give you another shot and give you the answers. All right. I'm going to go next with my quiz, and it is the non-audio quiz. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to list a group of first names, and I want you to tell me what band that is. Okay. The first one is going to be Stephen, Bernard, Peter, Ian. That's Joy Division. It is. Very good. The next one, a lot of these are hopefully going to be fairly fairly easy to get, I think. I hope so. All right. The next one is going to be Bob, Chris, Paul, and Tommy. The Replacements. Very good. The next one is going to be Elliot, Benjamin, Rick, David, and Greg. Elliot. Read it one more time for me. Rick, Elliot, Benjamin, David, Greg. I don't know. The cars. Oh, yeah. I got hung up on Elliot, and I probably should have not. All right. Last ones here. The last four are going to, you should just kind of clean up here, I think. Okay. Dave, Nikki, Pete, Mick, Ray. That's the kinks. It is. Very good. <laughs> How about this one? Bob, Grant, and Greg. <laughs> Husker do. Nice. Nice and easy. Craig, Tad, Galen, Bobby, Franz, and Steve. Franz. Oh, it's the uh, it's a hold study. There you go. Thank goodness they had a guy named Franz. Exactly. <laughs> when they're on stage, they move around all of them like they're Muppets and like they have no idea that they're Muppets. <laughs> I just remember uh, what's the lead singer, Craig Finn. When I saw him, it was pretty early on. It's like he kept yelling and singing and screaming the whole show, but he would move his head away from the mic. He'd yell and scream, and then when it was time for the actual song, to, he'd kind of move his, turn his head back to the mic, and then the, the words would come out just enough, and then he'd come back and keep yelling and singing. It's like, <laughs> pretty cool, pretty cool effect. Sometimes he would turn, I've seen him turn his head and kind of the uh, his torso along with his head, but his legs are still going forward, and he'll be clapping. Very Yeah, he did clap a lot. Very odd way. Does, it, does some cool They were claps. a fun show. Great. They were very fun Yeah, show. they're awesome. I live. saw him on the Separation Sunday tour, which is... One of my favorite records. So. That's great. Okay. Last one. Okay. Victor, Brian, and Gordon. Oh, uh, the, the Violent Femmes. Very good. Whew. All right. Are you ready to move along now to the turntable talk? Let's do it. Okay. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind What is the cost of silence? What part of the human condition is lost or found in stillness of sound? At some point, our culture seems to have turned its back on reflective quiet, opting instead for an environment that is constantly using stimuli to condition the population to various ends. Even in an era of personal choice, piped-in music is so ubiquitous these days as advertisements are embedded in our daily routines. No doubt the struggle of the avid music listener is to cut out the commercial carpet bombing of inoffensive instrumental pop standards so that we can enjoy, well, anything else really. Today's episode is a look inside the history of the sinisterly omnipresent background easy listening. 
Today, the history of Muzak. There are two depths of depravity with Muzak. The first is pretty obvious, that this music is very much intended to control its listeners, often holding them hostage in crowded, confined spaces. Subliminally or blatantly, elevator music attempts to lull us into the correct decision. Staying longer at the grocery store, spending a little more on those beanie babies, if we're in 1982, working more productively on the sprocket line or feeling safer in a box dangled 60 stories in the air surrounded by strangers with various levels of hygiene mastery. It's capitalist nightmare fuel. Unlike its ultra-hip cousin library music, which has the distinctive task of eliciting mood and vibe through sound, Muzak has the opposite goal. Give the listener an artificial feeling of comfort, which both enhances disinterest and suppresses emotions. It's brainwashing through boredom. A gift of desensitization brought to you by your favorite retailers. The second is the passive usurping of the prominence of music in everyday life. We're gifted with limited minutes on Earth to listen to human-organized sounds, or even the sounds of the environment around us sans marketers. You know, like birds and shit. Every moment that is drained with the force-feeding of the most artless form of music is time taken away from art with truer intentions and inherently greater value. For every second of soul-sucked, clean, instrumental versions of Girl from Ipanema, you lost out on one-tenth of a Sister Ray. Or one-fiftieth, maybe. All a long-winded way of saying it's noise pollution in maybe the most malignant way And it plays in the place of perfectly viable music created by people. Human people. Given its nefarious ends, it's no surprise that the idea all started with the military-industrial complex. Go figure. Major General George Owen Square was obsessed with communication. As a World War I officer in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, Square was charged with being able to deliver multiple messages from one place to another securely and efficiently. In 1910, he developed a technique called multiplexing, which sent several analog sounds simultaneously through electrical wires, circumventing the need for expensive and bulky radio equipment. Leaving the Army, Major General Square unleashed a weapon of somnambulant destruction in 1922 when he decided his technology could be used to pipe music via electric wires to paying customers who had the appropriate proprietary amplifier. Wired Radio Inc. was formed, and early tests were successful in getting music to play to the people of Staten Island, and charging them on their electric bill. However, as his technology got up and running, the radio boom hit. Free music and news were now available through the airwaves. Undeterred, Square switched gears and focused his new technology's commercial potential for businesses rather than individuals. He figured his product would be perfect for companies who wanted control of their environment with simple, easily looped music. In 1934, Square decided to change the name of his company to Muzak, mostly because he was obsessed over and coveted the glorious name that is Kodak. The name Muzak is itself an analogy for the mind-numbing sound it unleashes. It's a lame approximation of something clearly finer. His model was a success, and music soon became synonymous for syrupy orchestral elevator music and is used interchangeably. Sort of like Kleenex and tissue. And, also like Kleenex filled with moist gilt jam, is a creation meant for almost immediate disposal. One of the ironically delicious positives of Muzak was that in the early years of the company, They weren't huge, easily accessible music libraries that could be licensed out. So Muzak would pay for top bands and orchestras to record specifically for them. This would be important in recording and archiving some seminal musicians, including jazz musicians like Duke Ellington, Fats Waller, and Cloud Thornhill. For example, Muzak owns some of the only surviving recordings of the legendary Casper Reardon, the world's hottest harpist.
take that Harpo. Joanna Newsom. Who are some other harpists? Alice Coltrane. Take that, Alice Coltrane. Furthermore, since these recordings weren't meant for commercial releases, artists weren't bound to the three-and-a-half-minute side limit on 78s. It also meant A&R men were not present in the studio, giving the artist uh, their practical advice, which potentially meant a little bit more creative freedom. And I think that, from what I was reading, arrangers at studios would put out messaging or just call in musicians and say, hey, we've got this gig, you're going to go do this. And that's how a lot of the jazz artists did it. They went there, make a little bit of extra money, but also let it be known to the arrangers at the studio that, hey, they're open to doing stuff, their name's out there. Uh, Then they would be called more often. For those who didn't go, it sounds like they were less likely to be called into the studio to play on other, on real jazz albums. Well, and it's also kind of interesting, this idea of like providing rarity and exclusivity through the streaming services. Like you wonder if the medium will ever control like the artist, you know, like the medium becomes the record label. Like if Spotify starts having exclusive rights to play a certain band or, you know, how iTunes or Apple, whatever, they were the first ones, maybe the only ones to get the Beatles, you know, and it seems like there's a little bit of that that happened back then. And I could definitely see that as people are more competitive on how they deliver music that they're going to get this album is only through Spotify or this album is only through Pandora or, or whatnot. iTunes has been doing that for a while. They have, I know that I have a release of PJ Harvey iTunes sessions that were only on iTunes. So they have been doing it. And that was probably 20 years ago or whenever, you know, that was a while ago. But do you have a release like physically? No, that's the difference. It's not, it's only streaming. So uh, yeah, I guess they've already started that, but it makes sense. You wonder if they'll ever get so powerful that that's like, that's the only way to sort of like TV. That's the only way to see a show is you have to subscribe to this service, but. Muzak changed gears once more when it was sold to Warner Brothers in 1937, becoming closer to the dulling sounds we think of Muzak being in modern times. Instead of using prominent popular musicians, they created their own orchestras so they could completely control how the music sounded. With a wider multi-state market power, they focused on piping in their own pre-recorded lobotomized schlock upon purgatorial masses waiting for buzz cuts in barbershops, chicken cordon bleu in restaurants, or root canals in dentist offices. Elevators would provide the perfect location for the new force-fed music. As skyscrapers were popping up in big cities, building managers found that some light, dulcet tones would help stave off the feelings of claustrophobia, acrophobia, xenophobia, and olfactophobia, which is really just an umbrella term that covers fartophobia, body odorophobia, halitosisophobia, and my biggest phobia, dracar noirophobia, <laughs> elicited by the three-minute box of doom rides. You may as well be listening to Steely Dan. Elsewhere, speakers that would be responsible for the incessant music that would often be hidden among plastic ferns in mid-century waiting rooms. These two commonalities would give music the nicknames elevator music and potted plant music. But those wacky Warner Brothers found another use for their recent purchase. Some rather dubious research, likely from the same scientists that said cigarettes were great for your T-zone, had argued that non-offensive, aggressively passive music being played to workers in factories would enhance workplace happiness, inflate production, and decrease absenteeism. They trademarked the workforce production subliminal process as stimulus progression, which also used increasing tempos, intensity, and brassiness of their easy-listening music without, of course, all that unnecessary and overly distracting singing in 15-minute intervals. 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off. The silence, allegedly, protected against listener fatigue, which had counter-effects of stimulus, and the recurrence of the music gave their workers a sense they were moving forward and faster. A major study, of course commissioned by the company itself, declared a boost of productivity by 9.1%, 
many companies and even the military began to take notice. The whole stimulus progression thing is a little like playing music for plants, which is to say the research and reasoning are totally nuts and it seems all like pseudoscience. But people do seem to like having something to hum along with while they're working, especially if they're dwarves, and there is some data to back that claim up. A backlash bubbled up to the Muzak companies dipping their toes in the waters of behavioral modification as the public cried out against the musical manipulation. Certain cases claiming that employees were unwittingly brainwashed even went to court in the 1950s. And certainly, there is some real argument that companies are using sound to affect behavior, though it is difficult to say with certainty if this is brainwashing or just controlling of the environment. Little surprise that major companies have used little black boxes, which embedded subliminal anti-shoplifting music into their musical outputs. Inventor Dr. Hal Becker, who apparently is full Big Brother, posited that subliminal messages will be eventually everywhere, even in your air conditioning unit. Joe and I went on a secret mission, and we were able to find some of this little black box music. Have a listen for yourself. Hello, friends. You can do anything that you think that you can do. That's your Despite all the negativity, this legacy of Muzak and research findings were pushed on until the 90s. So it is kind of an interesting subject, like how much music can, can be used for behavior modification. Um, certainly, I mean, just incidentally, you think about bars that play certain music to attract certain customers or to, you know, get them to dance more and drink more. Think about you know, when we worked in a CD shop, we would play the most offensive, unpleasant music that we, we enjoyed, but most people wouldn't to make them leave when it was closing time. Or there was a study where a liquor shop, when they played French music, the French wines would sell much better. And when they played German music, the German wines would sell much better. So there's definitely some truth to the matter that the music does affect the mood and that can affect behavior. Muzak actually put out a series of stimulus progression LPs, and you can find them on Discogs. They're really inexpensive. They're probably really boring. But <laughs> if you like Muzak, they have them. They're cheap. I don't know why you would need more than one or the first track on the first side of one, but they have a lot of them. Well, it depends how many factories you own. Yep. If you were in a, working in a factory and you had a record player piping music out to employees... This would be perfect. Weren't you saying that, like, you read an article that even though it was supposed to be 50 minutes on and 50 minutes off, that that wasn't exactly how they did it? Yeah, it was a comment on a site, on, like, the Steve Hoffman site, which is a music site, really, really good site, a forum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And somebody commented on one of the music, Muzak posts, that they were working in an office when that office was going through those 15 minutes off, 15 minutes on thing. He commented that it was totally random. It wasn't 15 minutes. So it was almost like it was driving them insane because it was, it would go for like 17 minutes on and then two minutes off or, you know, whatever it might be, but it was just totally unpredictable. Whereas 15 and 15, you could, your body could sort of figure that out, your brain could. And if it's random, you're just really thrown off the whole day. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing is, at least the way I understood it is the beat of the song would slightly speed up. So it starts slow and go a little bit faster and a little bit faster and a little bit faster. I mean, it never got up to like, you know, motorhead speed or anything like that. But it would, you know, it would get fast enough where it, with the idea that like it would propel your body into working faster. I don't think it did, but, you know. It seems like doing all of this, like adding things into music to make it more potent um, and have effects on people. It's almost like they're putting... GMOs into them. 
you know, they're trying to change the DNA of the music so that it has more of an effect on everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a good and terrifying comparison. Muzak, both for industry and retail subscriptions, kept getting more and more popular in the 40s and 50s. It saturated society by worming its way into the ears of millions of Americans and going all the way to the top. Muzak is basically that creature that burrowed into Chekhov's ear in Star Trek Wrath of Khan. You know what I'm talking about. That's my favorite movie scene of all time. Saw that in the theater when it came out? Oh, man. <laughs> but that was kind of terrifying. Yeah. Not as terrifying as Ricardo Multibon's chest. That was just sultry and sumptuous. I, I think I talked about this in the Leonard Nimoy uh-huh. episode, but I'm going to go ahead and bring it up because that's been like 50 episodes. Nimoy makes a point of talking, of t- saying that those muscles were real. That was not a chest plate. Those were 100% Ricardo. If you can impress Nimoy with your, with your muscle tone, that's got to be good. <laughs> 100% real. In 1953, Eisenhower had the White House wired with Muzak. LBJ eventually owned Austin's Muzak franchise. Nixon naturally loved it. JFK had it playing on Air Force One, perhaps to set the mood for entertaining blonde dignitaries. NASA even used it to calm astronauts and relieve boredom, starting with the Apollo 11 11 mission. Surprisingly, none of the spacemen blew themselves out of the airlock. Interestingly, in a case of art becoming life becoming art, the easygoing mass strings music became so popular that people would start electing to play this music at home in the 50s and 60s as if under Stockholm Syndrome. Like a self-fulfilling prophecy, record companies started selling soft, melodic, instrumental music with sappy strings, plucky guitars, gentle keys, and generically smooth brass gliding over melody that was quasi-classical mixed with standards and modern pop tunes. Like a soundtrack for a television show, it, it quietly crept in and ingratiated itself with society. People ate it up like jello salad, I think. Yum. It kind of, it's its own subgenre. What's it called? Like beautiful music or it's, it's got some, like a bunch of different names. Beautiful music is one. Background music is the other main one. Mm-hmm. And background music, there was a competitor for Muzak in the Seberg company, who is really famous at the time for being like the jukebox company. And they decided in 1959 that they were going to enter the background music realm so that they could control not only all the restaurants and bars with their jukeboxes, but they would also now have dentist offices and businesses and everything. They created a machine called the Seberg 1000, and it was a giant cube that held up to 28 records. The records would spin at 16 and two-thirds RPM, so very exactly like what we mentioned in, I think, our very first episode with the Highway Hi-Fi car stereo that played records. This would spin at that slow speed so that they could fit 20 tracks on each side, and the machine would have a tone arm on each side of the record, and it would play the correct way on on the bottom side first. It would play clockwise one way, and then it would go back and play counterclockwise the next, and it would just continue and continue through all 28 records all day long. And the company, Seberg, would send out new records, just a small batch of records every three months, and the records would come with numbers. They would be lined up, and they say, you need to replace this number record from the last batch with this number record from this batch. And then they, the owners of these places would have to send those records back that they were no longer using, it, and Seberg would just destroy them. They would throw them away. They started by having three genres of music initially. So they would have basic, mood, and industrial. Those were the three that they started with. Eventually, in 1979, they switched things up to using three different genres, and the genre titles in 79 went to Lifestyle, Penthouse, and Upbeat. That happened in 1979, and in 1980, they almost went out of business. And right now, you can go to a website called 
seaberg1000.com and you can listen just continuously to background music. They just have it streaming all day, all night, all the time. Interestingly enough, uh, basic mood and industrial are the uh, three modes that Trent Reznor can can do. (laughs) (laughs) People come sending back all the Sisters of Mercy records saying, don't send us any more industrial. As with all popular technologies, competitors started flooding the markets, often offering new ideas to freshen up the process. Starting in 68, a small Seattle company called Yesco intentionally violated the principles of stimulus progression to make what they called foreground music. Piped popular music without the mushy softcore arrangements that demanded some attention. Businesses found that Yesco programming was significantly more well-received by the younger generation who was listening to soul and psych at rock and roll RB. Other notable competitors, Mood Music and AEI, followed Yesco's lead to license commercial music more suited to the actual type of shopper or client of the business. This divergence would lead to the mindset that most people hold about Muzak the product as Muzak the genre, that being bland, lifeless, and outdated music. Of course, inspiration can come in all forms, including bland, lifeless, and outdated music. Music that is purposefully in the background is not entirely a new phenomenon. In the 1910s, French composer Eric Satie created live musical pieces called furniture music, or a more literal translation is furnishing music. That is meant to be experienced in milieu rather than as entertainment. And of course, there are the silent pieces by John Cage, like 4 minutes 33 seconds, that focuses the audience's attention on that which is around them rather than what the music might have been playing. Here's a clip. I'm really glad that we chose the chorus for that clip because it's really it just sticks in my head for a while. Yeah, yeah, I prefer the live version. Good call. The greatest leap in modern atmospheric music comes from the legendary Brian Eno who developed and coined ambient music as a contrast to the dumbed-down commercialization of Muzak. Two incidents led to the landmark 1978 album Ambient One Music for Airports. First was Eno's nagging annoyance at the canned music that he was forced to listen to while waiting for a flight at the Cologne Bonn Airport. The second experience occurred while Eno was hospitalized after being hit by a car. Probably not by Brian Ferry. While convalescing, a friend leaving the hospital left a record of 18th century harp music playing for Eno, but at much too low of a volume. The barely audible record combined with the sounds outside and the hospital beeps and bloops to inspire Eno to want to develop a new type of sound, which he describes as being able to accommodate many levels of listening attention without enforcing one in particular. It must be as ignorable as it is interesting, like a staph infection. Don't ignore staph infections. (laughs) Ambient music was born and given a name and a patron saint. A topic for another time, it is important to note that it has its roots in Muzak, even as just a reaction to purposeful mindlessness of the style. As fewer companies continued using Muzak as soulless background music, the company fell further and further behind the competition. The Muzak company was slow to adapt to the idea that the juggalos at Spencer's Gifts don't want the same music as the Sears crowd or the Forever 21 shoppers. Eventually, in the 1980s, Muzak would merge with Yesco and phase out the notion of stimulus progression for Quantum Modulation starring Scott Bakula, which classifies (laughs) music for mood rather than productivity. 
Muzak engineers reimagined themselves as audio architects or sandwich artists who needed to create perfectly tailored playlists, creating the proper atmospherics for their clients, stores, or businesses, which kept the customers in the store happy and willing to spend, invoking emotional responses to make biased business decisions. Now that would be just a great job. Basically, your job is to make a mixtape to try and make people do things or buy things. And the whole process is kind of fascinating. Like people who sit there and study data and analytics and try to figure out, okay, this song's too offensive for the general public audience or this song's too dangerous and people will walk out and this song makes people want to spend more money. The science behind it is kind of crazy. So it's kind of like when Walmart or something would play Billy Joel and shotgun sales go up drastically. <laughs> that kind of thing. There was no shortage of ire at all background music. Famous confirmed pedophile Ted Nugent attempted to buy the Muzak Corporation for $10 million in 1986 with the sole purpose of shutting it down. This act was notably ironic as the Nuge is the sole rock musician who makes music that is even less interesting than Muzak. There is also a resistance movement called Pipe Down Campaign for freedom from piped music. Also known as You've gotten their brochures, I see. <laughs> Which includes actors Mark Rylance and Stephen Fry. They've been mildly effective as they have coerced Gatwig Airport and British retail giant Tesco, not Yesco, to do away with background music. Except for Christmas music. You can take the silver bells from my cold dead loins, you bastards. The business ultimately couldn't compete and racked up massive debt. In 2009, Muzak filed for bankruptcy and was bought by Mood Music, who saved some elements of the business, but wisely decided that the Muzak name might not be the best face to put on the product. However, its legacy lives on. Just think about what you listen to on a daily basis. An estimated 100 million people are exposed to background music every single day. One elevator music company had the slogan, Muzak fills the deadly silence. And another went with, Muzak is more than music. And truly, manipulation in music is nothing new or shocking. Rock should make you feel cool and rebellious. Folk music should deliver a certain message. Funk music should make you want to shake it. Punk music should make you want to spit at friends. And the Eagles should make you want to light your friends on fire. All music wants to self-propagate, make you spread the word, see the shows, buy the records. It is the distillation of any creativity that makes Muzak such a heinous enemy of music. There's no reason why functional music focused on utilitarian purposes, has to be in total contradiction with music for intellectual pursuits, artistic interpretations, or just plain entertainment. Brainwashing, commercialization, and manipulation are all secondary to the fact that elevator music just sounds horrible. Not horrible, but, but worse, boring. And I'm not joining any resistances or boycotting stores that pipe smooth jazz Christmas hits, but it does make me think about spending my time and money in places that care about me enough to not jerk me around with Muzak. I, we, deserve better. If you can't get enough elevator music, there is a book about it, and the author is kind of an expert. We got a lot of information from him. It's called Elevator Music, A Surreal History of Muzak, Easy Listening, and Other Mood Songs. So that's by Joseph Lanza. If you really love it, it's not a bad genre to collect. I think it had a, a moment of popularity, but that seems to be kind of fleeting. So you can get a lot of records for pretty cheap. Do you remember when it got kind of popular? I think it was in the early 2000s. It seemed like electronica or ambient just kind of coming together. Those fans realized, hey, there's this other stuff out there too. Let's try it. And people legitimately like it. So it can be collected. I certainly wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a pretty novel thing. And you, there are out there like kind of weird Muzak versions of interesting songs. Like there's like a subterranean homesick blues version I heard that was, was pretty crazy. 
Wasn't there like a Nirvana one? There's Smells Like Teen Spirit. There are a lot, like in the 80s, they went sort of crazy doing like Madonna ones, Michael Jackson ones. The 80s was real, there was a real boom in Muzak versions of pop songs, which always sounded really weird. Like I think you could probably hear every Tom Petty song done in Muzak version. Yeah, like American Girl from Ipanema. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those genres that it's kind of fun to learn about. For the sake of our show, we just kind of had fun with it. I mean, it's, you know, it's not really, it's not like one of those genres that like hooks us in and we're going to start buying all these records and stuff. I think we just kind of had a good time with it. What else are you going to do with it? The best thing it did was to create Brian Eno's ambient records. What else could you ask for? No, not much. All right. I think it's time to play some songs. Okay, I'm going to go first today, and I'm going to start with a song by a band called The Bermudas, and the song is called Chu Sen Ling. song Chu Sen Ling from 1964 that was a b-side to their almost hit Donnie probably the biggest hit the woman who is kind of fronting the Bermudas ever had the woman behind that band her name is Ricky Page and she and her husband George Matola had a record label called Toy Records and they would put out lots and lots of music. I think he wrote like 120 songs very quickly and they would create different bands and just with different names trying to come up with a hit. Sometimes she would record with her sister, Sonia, and sometimes with some combination of her daughters. She put out records on just a ton of other labels too, like Decca and Epic and Fleet, and it goes on and on. But this one was on Era Records. And she also recorded under a ton of different names for bands. So she recorded using the band name The Georgettes, The Bermudas, Joanne and the Triangles, The Majorettes, Beverly and the Motor Scooters, (laughs) Becky and the Lollipops, June and Joy, and the Page Sisters. And she also had a bunch of solo releases under her name, Ricky Page, which was also a fake name. The song was probably recorded by Ricky and her two oldest daughters, who were 15 and 14 at the time. But when they performed on TV, they would remove Ricky and they would bring in 
their other daughter, the youngest, who was only 12 at the time, and they called themselves the Bermudas. And I think it's a really bizarre song. Like, when you first hear it, you might not think it's an American band. But it is, and I think it's just very infectious. It's a lot better than Muzak. I'm not going with any kind of a theme today. I'm just playing songs I like. I also thought, like, I had a hard time wrapping my head around the song. Like, I had for a while, I didn't think they were singing English. Like, I really had to listen to the words to... Maybe it's because I saw the name of the song, or I don't know, but I, great song. <laughs> I got that at a record fair, and it was because my friend Zach, who I went go to record fairs with, recommended it. He told me about the Bermudas a little bit, and I am really glad he told me to get that one. I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, for my first song, I'm going to play you some Lawrence Welk, and the song is called Snowbird. Beneath this snowy mantle cold and clean The unborn grass lies waiting for its coat to turn to green The snowbird sings the song he always sings And speaks to me of flowers that will bloom again in spring young my heart was young then too anything that it would tell me that's the thing that i would do but now i feel such emptiness within for the thing that i want most in life's the thing that i can't win Snowbird by Lawrence Welk, and that was off his 1971 Ranwood Records album Candida. Lawrence Welk, popular accordionist and and showman and uh, TV host. It's a weird record. It's champagne versions of all these popular songs, and and you know there was look what they did to my song, Ma, and Crackling Rosie, and just. Hits from other other artists that Lawrence Welk had his people sing. So this one was sung by Sandy Griffiths and Sally Flynn, who are both regulars on the show, and it was written by Gene McClellan, who wrote hits for previously for Ann Murray, Elvis, Loretta Lynn, Joan Baez, Bing Crosby. He wrote it wrote this song for Ann Murray, who made it famous or more famous than than this. She also performed it on the Muppet Show, which kept getting interrupted by a dodo bird who made pretty dumb puns it's not a very funny skit kind of the um, same way that we make dumb puns. yes he's slightly better than us but <laughs> he's, still, he's still a muppet is also featured on the episode of family guy too apparently the Anne murray version i don't have a lot to say about this song much like the worm in Chekhov's ear it just wormed its way into my heart and, and normally I wouldn't play you good folks, Lawrence Welk, but I think you need to hear the song. It, it will do some do some good for your soul. And it kind of reminds me of Muzak for some reason. My, my searching did bring out two facts that I want to say. One is Wikipedia is sometimes just beautiful. The way it's worded is just beautiful. But my favorite thing is when talking about the song, it said, it contrasts the narrator's being stranded in the place of his or her heartache to the bird's ability to just up and fly away. 
<laughs> I thought that was <laughs> such a nice thing to say on Wikipedia. And the other thing I wanted to tell you is that Welk was awarded some U.S. design patents, and they were for, one, a musically-themed restaurant menu, two, an accordion-themed tray for serving food at a restaurant, and three, an accordion-themed ashtray. So, if you have any of those things, you can thank Mr. Lawrence Welk. We're going to take a, a left turn here. This next song is by a, a new artist, which we don't usually play, and it's called Bold, and the artist is Jackie Cohen. Jackie Cohen, and it's off her 2018 double L or double EP Tacoma Night Terror. And this is the first part, part one. I've got the blues, and it was released on Space Bomb Records. I don't know where I heard the song. I think it was on one of my wife's playlists from Spotify or something. Sort of like Snowbird. It just kind of caught me. And um, I liked it, and I was feeling like, you know, maybe I should just buy a record from somebody I didn't know a lot about. 
And so I went out and found this record. It was it was on Vinyl Me Please subscription service, but sometimes I think they sell records too, and it was wasn't too expensive. So I bought it. She's she's a new singer songwriter from L.A. and she's kind of hits that good dreary dreamy spot that I tend to like uh, with musicians. And so I just I really like the song. Read about her a little bit. She's married to one of the guys from Foxygen which I don't really know anything about. Do you know anything about them? I like them. They're kind of poppy. They've got somewhat of a 70s AM sound. Uh, I, yeah. I think they're good. They've got a song called San Francisco that I I like a lot. So she, I guess she was the backup singer for them for a while, like when she was real young, and she eventually married him. And so Jonathan Ratto, who, who's the producer of her record, is, is ha- you know half in that band. So I, I like her EP, and I really like this song. It just kind of... Hits me in the right place. So there you go. Bold by Jackie Cohen. Very nice. I'd never heard of her. The last song we're going to play tonight is Link Ray with a song called Facing All the Same Tomorrows. Facing All the Same Tomorrow. December the 1st, 1965. Crazy, man. This is good, man. Can you pick it up? It, you sure? Go get another microphone, make sure, man. All right. Ready? One. This is facing all tomorrows. Facing all the same tomorrows. Okay. Take two. One, two, three, four. You talk about the things you got But a whole lot of things don't mean a lot You talk about all the good times you had But time is just a place And things just waste away So what is a lot of nothing Facing all the same tomorrows Facing all the same tomorrow Facing all the same tomorrow So now people's gone And you're left standing all alone And you're right back where it started so when you try again, just do it with a grin And good fortunes come your way tomorrow Facing all the same tomorrows Facing all the same tomorrows Facing all the same tomorrows So listen to me, my friend Don't turn your back again To what you think is sorrow Cause life is just a mirth In the fog you're just a drift And you are really going nowhere Facing all the same tomorrows Facing all the same tomorrows Facing all the same tomorrows You think you are so very young And you know all the songs that's been sung You know you're in for just a delusion So you turn around and find yourself back on the ground Facing all the same tomorrows 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 All right, that was Link Ray with Facing All the Same Tomorrows. 
And that was actually a 1965 demo that has wasn't available on LP until Norton released it as a B-side to Vendetta in 1989. Uh, the song was written by his brother Vernon, and it's sort of just kind of setting me up because I really want the Vernon Ray solo album called Wasted, which was released in 1972, and this is the first song on that album, and his version of it is absolutely amazing. I like this version, the Link Ray version, a lot. I like I like Link Ray's voice. Um, his solo album is really good. This sort of fits in line with that, though I think it was recorded quite a bit earlier. But it's a very depressing song. But that doesn't mean it isn't also a great song, as most of the songs I like are, seem to be very depressing. <laughs> anyway, or have consistently. But the Vernon Ray album called Wasted, which hopefully one day it will be re-released so or reissued so that I can afford it, I haven't seen it on Discogs for under $70 yet. It has Facing All the Same Tomorrows on there, leading off the album, and then it also has a song as the closer called Prison Song, which is a great, great song, too. I'm working on an uh, existential crisis mix. <laughs> That's one of the tracks on there. Maybe that will be maybe that will be a bonus for, for our fans, maybe if I ever get myself together. I've got about like six, seven tracks picked out, or all songs about like kind of time and being lost into time and they're all kind of sad like that. So maybe if I ever get a good 10, 12 tracks together, I'll put that out. If anybody out there has any Prozac for Ryan, or <laughs> if you have any song suggestions for his existential crisis mix, send some ideas our way. Oh, please, please. I don't want to tell you what the ideas I already have, but I need more. It just feels like on this podcast, we're just speaking into an endless void, and we feel so <laughs> minuscule, like there's nothing here. And what's the point? <laughs> but in fairness, that's how we feel at the end of every podcast. Like, that's this is kind of the normal procedure for the podcast. Yeah, true. Podcast. All right. Great song. I enjoyed it. And I'm not very happy because literally on deck, I had a Link Ray song. So let's put a put an axe in this tree. All right. So if you remember earlier, we two were talking about some uh, Club Devo, some uh, Devo easy listening uh, music. And so I played six songs uh, and you just had to tell me which Devo song they were. So I'm, I'm going to play them one more time for y'all and then we will see what you can do. Track one. <laughs> Track two. Joe, what you got? Well, number one, I feel pretty good with, I think it's Jocko Homo. Absolutely. Number two, this one took me a while. Um, I think it's Comeback Joni. You got it. Yep. Number three, I don't know at all. I cannot figure that one out. Okay. That one is Gates of Steel. Oh, okay. Okay. 
Number four is Whip It. Yep. That one. That was kind of a gimme because yeah, they nice. actually use a whip. I appreciate that one. <laughs> yep. Number five, I don't know either. Number five is Mongoloid. Oh, good good one. Huh. Yep. And number six is one of my favorite Devo songs, Girl You Want. Yep. Great. You got it. Woo-hoo. Pretty good. There are some songs that are not very close to, to the actual original version, but... yeah. I love the story so much that they made their own Muzak version of their own songs and then played it before their own concert before they opened for themselves as another yeah, band. I mean, it's wonderful. Yeah, Devo's just great. Yep. Absolutely. So, you did good, though. You did good. I wasn't sure how hard or easy that would be. I, I knew there was a couple that you could get right away, but I knew that a couple were kind of tough. So when you announced that that's what it was going to be at the beginning of the show, I thought, oh, this will be easy. And then as I listened to him, it's like, oh, this is not easy. This is really hard. Uh, and then they, a uh, few of them just sort of came to me. You're going to say, I thought, uh-oh, it's Devo. Uh-oh, Devo. <laughs> well, if you've made it this far, we appreciate you. We appreciate you even if you didn't make it this far, if you listened at all. Please, as always, go spend some of your hard-earned cash on some music um, and do it in a way that makes everybody feel good, you know, support an artist, support a local record shop, support a record company. Just, just make sure you're spending your money in a way that helps a lot of people, um, with music. Streaming's great. We want you to keep your Muzak, um, subscriptions, but you know, that's, there's more to life than just Muzak. And also we would love it if you followed us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We're really easy to find on all of them. Highway Hi-Fi Pod is our handle on Instagram and Twitter. Email us if you have any suggestions about anything. Our email address is podcast at gmail.com. Email those existential songs. Tell somebody. You got a friend who loves Muzak? Hey, I got the podcast for you. If you have a friend that loves Muzak, get a new friend. <laughs> <laughs> If you've got a friend who loves Muzak, you're probably not going to be able to get another friend. You're in rough shape. (laughs) All right. I think this plane's falling fastly out of the sky. So we're going to go ahead and say thanks for listening, and we'll uh, see you next time. The end. Con. Sorry. Go ahead. That's not even close to a word. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.